1: Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals podcast on the MindPod Network. My guest today is Mark Matusik, who is the author of two award-winning memoirs, Sex, Death, Enlightenment, an international bestseller, and The Boy He Left Behind, as well as When You're Falling, Dive, Lessons in the Art of Living, and Ethical Wisdom. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including The New Yorker, O, the Oprah Magazine, Tricycle, and Details, and he is on the faculty of the New York Open Center, Esalon, the Omega Institute, Hollyhock, and others in Europe and the U.S. Since 2008, Mark has been the creative director of V-Men with Eve Ensler, an organization devoted to ending violence against women and girls. Mark, thanks so much for being with me today.
2: Oh, thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah.
1: So, wow, that's quite a bio. You have done quite a bit with yourself over the years. Extremely impressed.
2: (laughs) I I haven't been idle.
1: Right. No, I I see that. And I know that this bio only begins to skim the surface of of everything you've been doing with yourself. So, as I mentioned before we started this, I mean, there are so many different ways we can go with this conversation. Um, What I wanted to start with... Just briefly, for anyone who's not familiar with you, for our listeners, to give them a little background about yourself. Um, what brought you into what you do today, the spiritual life, the writing? I mean, all the incredible things you do with yourself.
2: Mm. Well, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of con- a lot of confusion, uh, a lot of trauma, abandonment, loss, all those good things that really make, you know, give a, give a memoirist uh, his material. Yeah, uh, but it was a it was a, a house where the, a home where there was a lot there were there was no spiritual support uh, there was no authority uh, there and I grew up from a very early age feeling confused about the world uh, because no one was giving me answers it really turned me into a seeker at a very young age uh, I started writing in a journal when I was you know seven or eight uh, and I've never stopped uh-huh. and for me writing became a way of making sense of my life. Uh, of finding my way through dark times uh, when when there was nobody around to help me. Uh, It actually became a gift to me because I had to turn inward. Uh, So writing became, uh, from a very early age, my lifeboat. It became my way of finding my way to the other side of whatever was going on. Uh, And then I came to New York uh, and just wanted to be a writer, and I I became a a magazine editor and a journalist for a while. I worked for Andy Warhol. I worked in the magazine world, and I really enjoyed being a part of the pop culture. But then in my late 20s, I really hit the wall uh, because friends started to get sick from AIDS. uh, I was worried about my own health, and I was truly having a spiritual crisis. What I was doing with my life, even though it looked interesting from the outside, was inwardly very. Unsatisfying. And I was actually truly depressed. Um, And someone came into my life around that time and said, You know, you are having this is a spiritual crisis that you're having. And I had never heard it described that way. And suddenly I put it into a different context. Uh, And he invited me to come with him to India. Uh, I I left my job, uh, much to my friend's shock and chagrin. uh, And I went to India with him. And it started a whole new search for me a whole new life because i was afraid of my for you know i was afraid that my days were numbered and when that happens mortality becomes and becomes a, a catalyst for change yeah. so i was just determined that if i was going to die i didn't want to die ignorant yeah. And so I be, that really fed my seeking, and I was a dharma bum for ten years, and and then I wrote a book about it, which became Sex, Death, Enlightenment. So that that's a kind of a a, a brief, a, a thumbnail sketch yeah. of how I got where I am.
1: So, and that's incredible. Uh, I mean, we could talk about any one of those things for the next hour, I'm sure. Um, I would love to hear. So you you went to India, and you you didn't want to die ignorant, as you said. So. Let's talk a little bit about spiritual awakening. Um, I mean, those two words mean many different things to many different people. So in your experience, maybe from India, um, is that where you would say it really started for you, your spiritual awakening and or before?
2: Well, I'd say to the degree that it might that it has happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, it started before I went to India slightly because I started to read books that Opened my mind that sure. began to change my perspective. I started to learn about meditation. Uh, I started to learn about the seeker's path. Um, things like you know higher consciousness, satori. The, the you know the, uh, the the objectives of spiritual life became something that was familiar to me. Uh, and then I went to India, and that accelerated it, yeah, because on the way, I met an amazing teacher, Andrew uh, Harvey, was my friend who took me to India, yeah. and he uh, he introduced me to a teacher named Mother Mira in Germany. Uh, and meeting Mother Mira, Truly changed my life, yeah. and it's such a cliche. But I was a skeptic. I was an I was and am an agnostic. I don't claim to be a person of faith, but I knew that when I'm in, in meeting this woman, I knew that I was encountering something I had never seen before. Sure. it was a quality of holiness, a quality of sacredness. It just opened my my eyes to what was possible for human consciousness. Yeah, I wasn't looking for a guru. I'm not a follower type, right. but I. To me, it was a sign of what was possible. Yeah. Uh, and after we met Mother, then we went to India and then it became a, then it was a, the roller coaster began.
1: That's incredible. And so that's great that you mentioned being an agnostic. Um, I write in my next book a bit about uh, a, a dear friend of mine. His name is Chris Stedman, and he's an atheist, which I know there's an obvious difference there, but he is also the humanist chaplain down at Yale University. And his first book is called Faithiest. It's a really tremendous book. And Faithiest is, it's actually a derogatory term that's used towards atheists that work with religious or seekers, you know, people that do believe in God. But his thing is, you know, he says that there is a goodness in all of us. And he believes, you know, you can come together with anyone and make an impact in this world. I think that's beautiful. So... He wouldn't necessarily call himself spiritual, but he's one of the most you know spiritual people I know again, just knowing that spirituality is it's a word you know it's it, yes it's a lens we start to live through but um so that said, being agnostic you know how how do you how how would I say this? What is spirituality for you coming from the agnostic
2: viewpoint? Everything is spiritual. Mm. There's no barrier between the spiritual, the non-spiritual, the sacred, the profane, the human, the divine. Any of those dualisms don't have any meaning for me because I'm not a theological thinker. Sure. So I see everything as spiritual. Yeah. But, you know, but obviously spirituality has very little to do with religion or religiosity. Right, right. Uh, so I, I feel I, I am a humanist to my core and I profoundly believe in the possibility of of, of human awakening. Yeah. Um and, but I'm agnostic in the sense that I don't know that there is any creator God per se in the way that the religions presented. It has never resonated for me. Sure. Um so I feel like I have a faith. But it's not that fa- it's not a faith in uh, in a in an external God. Right. Yeah. 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 The faith I have the faith I have is more of a sense of possibility.
1: Right. Yeah. Which seems to be what in in my experience, at least of reading and studying the mystics, what many of them were saying. You know, it was yeah. uh, Meister Heckhart was wonderful, you know, with talking about seeing God as a not God, you know, like remove this barrier of of me placing my projections onto God um you know he is closer than our breath even and you know kabir all the great mystics really shine such a tremendous light on that so i think it's beautiful that you know your your definition and explanation thank you
2: and the other, the other thing, Chris, is that because I felt so inauthentic in other areas of my life, yeah. when I entered so-called spiritual life, I was determined that it was whatever I did was going to be authentic yeah. and based on true experience, and not taken on rumors or or blind faith. It was too important. It was too important to me. Yeah. Uh, so that that's why I, I protected. I, I'm. Guard against being fatuous, which is something that happens in a lot of spiritual circles, especially New Age circles. People just jump into the light and they ignore the darkness that's part of, you know, awakening. And, and, And that to me is a lot of blind faith is about ignoring your doubts, which are natural. And pretending to be more awake or more saintly than you actually are, and and that I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I felt like a hypocrite in my worldly life, you know, in my ambitious, competitive alpha male life. Right. I uh, I didn't want to feel that way in in whatever spiritual life I, I found for myself.
1: And you are totally preaching to the choir, my friend. That's what mu- much of my work is about in both my books. I talk quite a bit about that in spiritual bypassing. You know, everything's all good. It's it's all love and light, brother. When, Sure, that's a part of it. That, that happens. But no, that's not all of it. You can't have the light without the dark, right? Completely not. And who would want to? No,
2: right, right. It's based on this strange kind of, you know, uh, puritanical... Almost fascist approach to what human nature is supposed to be, sort of scrubbed clean. Right. You know, it's a it, and 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 that's not what real juicy spirituality is about. Yeah. And that's another thing about going to India, which I was fortunate to start my my search. You know, early in my search to go there, because you see that our ideas in the West of what's sacred versus what's not, mm. and this dualistic white and black way of looking at things, is so juvenile. Mm. Because, you, I mean, you go to India and you see it's all mixed together. Right. And you see that's what reality is. Reality is not this, you know, this this pink, you know, this pink light yeah. <laughs> that you're just going to dissolve into. It's it's the whole thing. And, and I wanted an earthy, embodied spiritual life.
1: Right. So important. One of the best things that I did, and it took me a few years to actually do this, but was to start doing some of the shadow work. You know, really going there i i've talked about this before in the podcast but i had the very naive picture this is going back about 12 years ago but when i was first stepping on the path when i would sit and meditate i'm, I'm in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction and a lot of that wreckage of my past would come up and i mean really the dark stuff and so i thought i was failing at being spiritual you know because like where's the bliss i'm i'm not feeling bliss Luckily, you know, it didn't take me too, too long, but to realize that was the good stuff, that was the juicy stuff, you know, that comes up, and that really, as Ram Dass would say, becomes the grist for the mill to work with.
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's you know, the ancient alchemists used to put a pinch of the blackest element they could into this thing that they called gold, yeah. and without that black element, it could they couldn't create this gold you know this gold substance
1: yeah yeah
2: it's just like that i mean who and 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 who would want a life without shadow i mean right. that's a life without perspective it's a life without depth it's a life without memory it's a life without you know it's 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 not a human life
1: right absolutely so you do. I mean, you teach a number of workshops. Uh, we already discussed writing. I think that's incredible that you do writing. You know, it's a very spiritual practice for you. I think that's beautiful. You do another workshop that I wish I was closer to this because it sounds like something I would love to do. It's it's based on your book, When You're Falling Dive, um, and I want to talk just a little bit about that um, because what I'd read the description, it sounded so wonderful. So I just wanted to talk briefly about that for listeners. Um, As I read, it's been described as a life-affirming workshop that has helped students around the world to envision their lives anew during times of challenge, which is incredible. Um, And you cover a lot of ground in these. It's a three-day workshop. Um, And there were two topics specifically that I think are important and I think we can have a great conversation around for listeners. Um, The first one is how to become comfortable with discomfort which kind of segues from what we were just discussing. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit, a bit about that.
2: Absolutely. Well, when you're following Dive is is the stories of survivors uh, and what it is survivors of all walks of life including myself yeah. and what it is that connects us, you know, what is the through line between folks who somehow managed to turn adversity into growth and learning. Yeah. Uh, and, and folks who who just kind of give up on it. Hmm. So so one of the things that I found was that people who tend to do well in uh, survival situations are, are are people who can become comfortable with discomfort. Yeah. you get over this idea that to be happy you need equilibrium, you need equanimity, you need no issues in your life, you need all situations to pass, then you're going to be happy. And what you realize after you go through the fire of, of surviving a life and death experience uh, is that life, that never happens. It uh-huh. never. The discomfort, in that sense, never passes. That's dukkha, that's part of being alive. Right. Uh, and, and so to be comfortable with that, which includes impermanence, mm-hmm. is everything. On the spiritual path—that's what it's all about—is somehow learning uh, to have grace uh, and to have awareness and even gratitude uh, in the midst of, of chaos, in the midst of catastrophe, which is what human life can can be sometimes. So, how do we be with that in a way uh, that we have an internal refuge that doesn't get chaotic, where we're able to sit to, to take our seat? you know, and to hold our seat in that way. Um, so that's really, really important, um, getting comfortable with discomfort and, and and redefining what that really is, is redefining happiness, mm. which is another thing that happens when you survive, you know, something major. You, you think, gosh, I thought that's what I needed to be happy. Yeah. And then you realize happiness is this multicolored, you know, crooked, imperfect state of being. It has nothing to do with this, you know, if I get it all, I'll have that perf- that level of perfect, of perfect contentment. Right. It, it, that it stops being about that. So you're redefining happiness when you learn to be comfortable with discomfort. Uh, you're you're redefining wellness and and how you're able to be w- in your life with your life uh, in moments of, of of pressure and change.
1: Hmm. So important. I mean, in my case, I, you know, I, I went that route and I hit those bottoms and it, it took near death a uh, numerous times for me to really start to come back from that and see exactly what you were saying. And today for me, you know, some days I'm not always happy, shiny, you know, bright and rainbows. But the thing is, I recognize that, okay, today this is as happy as it's going to get for me. And compared to where I was, thank God, this, this is a, a dream. This is a cakewalk. No problem. Yeah, <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah I could, if exactly. if this is like the worst thing that's going to happen me today, you know, whatever the case may be, compared to what I lived through, all right, it's okay. So, yeah, <laughs> right. there's something to be said for that trial by fire and and the the grace to be found in suffering. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Ram Das is he he says that suffering is the sandpaper of our incarnation. It does its job of shaping us. So, you know, really, that's that's been a big one for me. Um, it does. So the second thing that I I thought was really awesome um, is that you you work with is beginner's mind. And for those, you know, that's a term very uh, often associated with Buddhism. So for those not familiar with beginner's mind, can you talk a little bit about that and the importance that it plays in our lives kind of taking that beginner's mind?
2: Sure. I well, Beginner's Mind is coined by the Zen Buddhists. uh Suzuki Roshi yeah. wrote the famous book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Yeah. Uh, and what it points to is that our idea in the West that wisdom comes from knowledge, that wisdom comes from stuffing more and more information into our heads, yeah. uh, is actually backward. That in fact, when your head is full of information, knowledge, and thoughts, you can't grow, you can't learn, you can't see, hear, and be in the in the moment. That in fact, an empty mind, a beginner's mind, uh, is always changing, is always fresh. Uh, it's like a child waking up to its life, moment by moment by moment. Uh, and the degree to which we can cultivate cultivate that kind of direct awareness and appreciation and sensitivity to our lives we are awake i mean that is what enlightenment is is right. it's 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 being here now like ramda says right uh, yeah so uh beginner's mind for a survivor is su- is particularly important because it, when you're in a difficult time and you're going moment by moment you really don't know how you're going to get through the next hour uh, mm. it helps a lot to be able to come back to the present and say i don't know what's going to happen i am in this is mystery. This is unfolding. And, and it actually calms down the anxious projections that go on in, in times of stress uh, mm. that this is not going to pass and, oh my gosh, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. So beginner's mind helps you dial it back. Mm. Um, and it's, it's of course, what meditation is all about because each time we watch the breath, we begin again. The breath and the inhalation, exhalation, it's, all, it's a cycle of beginning again. Mm. And then it becomes a... More a, a, moral, a moral for your life, a principle of your life that, that you realize you can always begin again no matter what's happening. What a relief! I mean, right. what, a, what a concept that is, yeah, really. When we and we, we're so we put so much emphasis on making it serve and, and succeeding and achieving that we forget that um, we can fail and risk and fall apart and begin again. Yeah. It, it, it sort of takes down the hero idea and makes it makes makes it far more you know far more human
1: absolutely the that begin again became very important for me i mean a lot of teachers talk about that uh sharon salzberg was one that really brought it home for me because again going back to my early years of meditation i would constantly get lost in thought and i still do you know it's 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 part of what happens in meditation but every time i'd catch myself thinking i would start you know mentally beating myself up like you can't even not think you know just all these negative self-thoughts but then you know through reading a lot of sharon's work it, I I learned that that begin again, that's where the magic happens. When you catch yourself, begin again, begin again. So thank you for addressing that very important point.
2: Oh, it's, it's huge. And I love what Sharon says about, you know, that about meditation, that, every time you re- you realize you have forgotten, yeah, that's a moment of enlightenment, yes, every time you remember every time you bring yourself back that that is a moment of enlightenment yeah. is what a reversal that is, right you know, from the idea that you know it's you've just the punitive idea that now you've just failed and now it's going to get worse and worse and worse it 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 it's it goes from a judgmental dogmatic place to an organic place uh of how life actually happens, you know, yeah that, yeah. Life isn't beating itself up for for what it didn't, what didn't happen. It's moving forward.
1: Right. Absolutely. So well said. So I'm going to go back on script for a second here because there's one thing I I really, I, in the spirit of full disclosure, I wasn't familiar with VE Men, that organization that you're the creator, directive of, until I was preparing for this interview. Um, But when I started checking out, it incredible work. So... Um, I wanted to actually read two short excerpts from our listeners uh, or for our listeners from a piece that you wrote on the website just to give them a little bit of background uh, regarding your involvement. And then I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because I think it's such important work happening over there. Uh, So the very first one, the excerpt is, last summer when Eve Ensler asked me to write... Something about violence against women, from a male perspective, I went to my desk feeling skeptical, and not at all sure that I had anything significant to say on the subject. Although I had grown up in a house where female molestations of various kinds happened on a regular basis, and had spent a good deal of my adult life and therapist time sorting through the emotional rubble left behind after witnessing so much misogynist violence, I felt doubtful that my experience mattered, for the simple reason that I was a man compared to the traumas I had witnessed in the lives of my mothers and sisters. And then later in the piece, you wrote, It became clear to me, as it already was to Eve, that violence against women was not merely a female issue. It was a human dilemma, twisting the lives and consciences of men as well, men whose voices needed to be heard in order for the dialogue that began ten years ago with the founding of V-Day to be complete. So, that... That's really profound. Uh, can you talk a bit about V day, you know what what they're doing and and elaborate a bit more on that for listeners?
2: Sure, absolutely. Eve is one of my oldest friends and and a true hero. Yeah. if we're talking about heroes, she's someone who is genuinely you know a- heroic. she's her organization V day has raised close to a hundred million dollars wow. for women worldwide uh to build safe houses uh to educate women to uh, help women get out of violent uh, situations to care for them uh and her play the vagina monologues is performed every year you know between 12 and 1500 productions or all over all over the world right. so she's really had an impact with putting the female anatomy you know back on the map and and not just physical anatomy but emotional anatomy spiritual anatomy and the whole female uh way of looking at the world she's a a great believer in the divine feminine and the importance of bringing that force uh, into the world which is what she's been doing with v-day for 20 years uh and so when she asked me to write this piece i just didn't think that i had anything to say because i wasn't a woman uh, and then I, when I, as I wrote it, I realized that I had was holding on to a lot of shame as a man because I had grown up in a house where there, where women were molested, where there were various bad situations, and I hadn't done anything to stop it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I felt like a conspirator. And I realized in writing this piece how guilty I felt just by being a man. Wow. Uh, that somehow I had taken on this, you know, guilt by association or guilt by biology yeah uh for what my brother men were doing uh, all over the world and it, it was a, it was a it was a big wake up for me to see that i had all of this shame and that i was holding on to this feeling of of being um powerless yeah that there was a sense of just being powerless uh and So it's been amazing doing this work for for, for V-Man. We've done a lot of workshops around the country. Uh, We've been working on a piece that's supposed to be the the male version of the vagina monologues. Oh, cool. Uh, And... And I've been curating this um, this series of essays on the V Men site, and I just would like to invite anyone listening to this who, if you're a man and if you have a story about violence against women or feelings about that in your life, I would love to uh, hear from you at, at V Men because I, I'm, I'm looking, for, I'm always looking for people to, who who want to share their stories.
1: Mm, beautiful, yeah, and it's so needed. I mean, it's 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 something that's beyond relevant, and I I want to say I was surprised. But I really wasn't at all this backlash that was happening with, for, for the lack of more uh, exciting things to talk about, the Mad Max movie, you know, that just came out. And I saw it with my wife. We loved it. Thought it was a tremendous movie. A very kind of pro-feminist feel to it and the women just kicking ass. And that was wonderful. Like, what a, a f- breath of fresh air. But then, you know, to see all this backlash from a lot of the men's groups, like, they are not happy with that. I I. You know, again, I, I want to say I was surprised, but I wasn't, you know.
2: Well, it's also not accidental that George Miller, the director, asked Eve to come to Namibia while they were filming and, and to advise on the script.
1: See, I was not aware of that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. OK, so that yeah. makes a little bit of sense then.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> um,
2: what, what would a woman who's break, who's saving other women and breaking out of this male, you know, br- brutal paradigm Look like you know who would she be, and and so who who better to, to fill them in on that than Eve?
1: <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's amazing. So we already started discussing this a little bit, but I wanted to revisit the theme of heartbreak and grace. Um, there is a quote from your book, Seth, Sex, Death, and Enlightenment, that I loved, and I wanted to share with listeners and have you expand upon. Um, you just simply wrote, "Whatever it takes to break your heart and wake you up is grace." And as I mentioned, you know, I, that resonated very deep with me because of my own experience. And um, the more and more people I'm coming in contact with through my own work, my book and podcast, it seems like that is a very common element. So, could you elaborate a bit on that?
2: Sure, I mean, for many of us, it's that first moment of heartbreak that is the beginning of the wisdom path. Yeah. You know, it, it's sort of easy to coast until then, and 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 when things are going well, and, and and you haven't had to feel really threatened or feel deep loss or disappointment, it's easy to imagine that that's what life might be like. You know, like the Buddha in his palace before he goes out and looks at at what's really going on. But it's that moment of seeing and feeling what's really going on. Yeah. You know, that dukkha, that gap between what we want and and what we can have uh, that awakens us to the impermanence uh, of life, which actually cracks open the spiritual window. It's that that cracks open the spiritual window. Until you've had your heart broken, in the sense of knowing that that uh, you can't have it all uh, and that you're not omnipotent and immortal. Until you've had that moment, you can't glimpse what's 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 beyond your egotistical desires and and fears. Mm. Uh, So it's actually that moment of liberation doesn't feel good, but that's what heartbreak is. It's a moment of liberation from the idea of self. Uh, And the notion that you have to have certain things in order to be okay. Uh, And also, it's the beginning of the idea that there may be something beyond what we, uh, what we're grasping for, Mm -hmm. um, that is actually uh, more, uh, more strengthening, more empowering, more gratifying, than, than what, than what the mind is trying to grab onto. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's actually a moment of liberation and and expansion to have your heart broken. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, so whatever does that, that whatever it is that does that for you, um, is grace, uh, because it's, it's a moment of awakening. It's a moment of potential, uh, in, in awakening.
1: Yeah. Beautiful. I, I, you know, as I'm listening to you, do you speak, I'm, I'm going back, uh, like uh, again, roughly 12 years or so, maybe even more to when I was waking up in my bed, going through withdrawals, you know, completely or hung over sick, you know, wondering how am I going to get high today? And I didn't recognize those times, you know, as, as beginnings in, in a in a very abstract way. As you're talking about, those are kind of beginning awakening experiences because I was I was shot. I was beat. You know, that white flag was up. Yeah.
2: <laughs> there yeah. I was. And you're cra- it's those moments when you're crashing up against your limitations.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh,
2: and those moments then crashing against your limitations doesn't usually feel good. Not it at It ha- tends to happen in moments of darkness.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: Um, that, that you do start to, you know, start to open to what's beyond that.
1: Right. But right. you have
2: to crack first. You have to crash first.
1: That is it. Yeah. And, and you know, and then I remember going into detox from there and, and the feeling of, oh, my gosh, it's actually okay to get some help in, in this, you know, help, not just in that, but help in life in general. You know, I, I'm kind of introverted by nature and I, you know, DIY, I'm going to do it all myself. That's That's how I was. So yes, the heartbreak mixed with the surrender, mixed with the accepting help. Granted, I then proceeded to go through a vicious cycle of relapse, you know, over the course of the next several years. But as each relapse got worse, the bounce back got better. It was a very interesting dichotomy happening. So
2: yeah, hopefully- and, and that's not accidental, you know, that the the deeper you fell, the higher you bounce. Yes. That's yeah. what happens to the psyche when, as we start to wake up. Is as your potential for, jo- for 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 pain and grief and bearing the hard things in life in- increases so does your the potential for joy
1: yeah yeah
2: and that's the, the, it you can't have one without the other you know we were talking earlier about having no shadow if you have no shadow if you deny the shadow you're also denying the bliss right you can't you can't have have one without the other so anyway that sounds that sounds right on that. You would be having this, this, ex, this expansion in both directions at the same time.
1: Yeah, it really was something. And, and I remember my father actually, well, my parents came and visited me. Uh, I was in New Jersey at the time in a, in a rehab. This is about four years ago after my last, uh, relapse incident. And he brought a, an article and it was actually from like a, a business magazine or something. And it was called the bounce and it was, and it kind of described that. And it It was odd to me that, okay, here's a business magazine article, but it's really speaking to my situation. So it was a very neat uh, way for me to help to begin to see that and a lot of gratitude around that today. A lot of gratitude. so. (laughs) (laughs) So another kind of grace I saw on a somewhat recent Facebook post that out of a very strange turn of events, you met your half brother for the first time. (laughs) <laughs> incredible. I mean, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I, I was very touched by that very simple post, but what a beautiful story that was.
2: It was an amazing thing that happened. My father disappeared when I was four years old. Uh, I never saw him after that, never heard from him, never knew what had happened to him. Uh, I wrote a book about hiring a detective to look for him. I mean, I had really done my father's search. Yeah. Uh, and then about uh, two and a half months ago, uh, I got an email from someone saying, you know, dear Mark, you don't know me, uh, but we have we have the same father. Uh, and after he left us in California, he had gone to Illinois and started in a second family. Uh, and so and, and then this, he had left that family as well. So he was just reaching out because he didn't have any other blood connection to his father. So for me, it was it was mind blowing yeah. because I had really closed that chapter of my life, right. uh, and there was also information there that you know it wasn't happy information, but it was a it was weirdly healing because it confirmed what my mother had always said, uh, and I had blamed her for. I realized she was telling me the truth when she said that he was not such a great guy, uh, because I started hearing the stories from my half brother and his mother uh and i realized i sort of forgave my mother in retrospect yeah. for a lot of of the ways i thought she had been unfair to him in fact she she had been telling the truth so it was it was a it was a changing of my family story that turned out to be quite healing but not in the ways you would expect you know it's not because i had this warm and fuzzy connection with my father on the contrary right uh, I, I, so I sort of, I let go of the fantasy that he had been this guy on a white horse who got away.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so you mentioned something that's very important or has been very important in my life. And I think for anyone, uh, forgiveness, you know, that's a big one. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you know, for me, it's it's something that I, I still have to work with uh, for, and especially towards myself. You know, I hold a lot of guilt over my own actions in the past but forgiveness of others just forgiveness in general um i'd love to hear your thoughts on that
2: sure well forgiveness is uh is a beautiful thing when it happens but it can't be forced right any more than you can force someone to let go uh we can't force ourselves to forgive and in fact premature forgiveness uh, can be more damaging than honest anger ah uh, this That's the spiritual bypassing we were talking right. about earlier, right. the leapfrogging into forgiveness when, in fact, we're enraged and we're not letting ourselves feel it. It's so important that we let ourselves feel all of our anger. Uh, and then there comes a time, and we all know it in our own lives, we, we know even if we're holding on to being angry, we know it's time to move on or we would like to move on. And that's when forgiveness... Uh, Is the most important, and we don't. What what it what I've learned about it, and some wonderful woman said in When You're Falling Dive, forgiveness is a selfish act. Forgiveness Mm. isn't about forgiving another person. It's about it's it's a selfish act in order not to be controlled by our own past, and that. When I heard that it re- it made a lot of sense to me, yeah, because we have this very um, righteous idea of forgiveness. I'm going, I, in my goodness, am going to rise above and forgive you. Well, that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't work. It, forgiveness comes from humility, mm-hmm. you know, and I think part of forgiveness is recognizing that the wounds don't go away, right If you're basing your forgiveness on on the idea that your wounds are going to disappear, you'll never forgive anyone. Mm-hmm. The the trick is how do we forgive knowing that these wounds are now a part of who we are, yeah. And and it really is about forgiving our past. It's about letting the past, saying we're not going to be controlled by that. We're not going to let that you know let that uh, you know dominate the rest of our lives. Mm. Byron Katie has a wonderful thing. She says you know somebody somebody you know slapped you fifty years ago. It's over. That's grace. But the mind, the mind keeps repeating it, right? It's never over for the mind until we start questioning the story, right? And that's another big piece about forgiveness is questioning the story, because we we tell ourselves these self protective, self justifying stories, often that are not true. Mm -hmm. And so it is forgive part of forgiveness is looking at what our story is about the event. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And you know, really, casting some doubt on it and looking and saying, "Well, how much of that is me? How much of that is my own distortion? And how much of that is uh, what was something that was actually done to me?" Right. Uh, yeah, it's recalibrating our memories.
1: Yeah. Wow. Th- thank you for saying that. And and the selfishness aspect. Wow. Really. I. Yeah. You know, making amends is part of the uh, twelve step fellowship and, and an important one. I I do believe that. Um, but you know. Any good sponsor in the fellowship will tell you that never make your amends before the time is right. And never make your amends if it's gonna hurt someone else. So speaking of that selfishness, sure you you know, you wanna feel better about something you did, but if it's gonna bring more pain to a person or more pain to a situation, that's not fair. That's not fair to that other person. So, you know, becoming a bit more skillful in the way that we deal with those things is very important.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and generally, don't you find as oh, yeah. you get older, oh, yeah. timing, is, timing is everything.
1: Absolutely. And so another thing you mentioned there is, is feeling our feelings. You know, actually, if you have anger, feel that anger, you know, or if there's that sadness, feel that sadness. We we look around and, and I'm still guilty of this sometimes. I'm not perfect at it, but, you know, people will pick up uh, food or turn the TV on or video games, you know, eat, read a book or some people even will meditate as a means of aversion. They don't want to feel these feelings. So um, I would love to talk a little bit more about feeling our feelings, you know, the importance of that. And how can we actually begin to do that?
2: Uh, well, first, the first thing to do is to get over the fear, to confront the fear uh, that your feelings will kill you, right Because at the, at the bottom, at the end of the day, people resist the, their feelings of anger and grief and, and, and outrage and because they think that they will kill them. I mean that's how strong those feelings are. Uh, so it's it's realizing that the feelings are the, are the feelings, yeah. and I am myself. Ah. And that you are not your feelings. Your feelings are something that are that you're having. They're a response that you're having. But they also will, if you if you allow them to arise and be felt, they will pass of their own accord. Mm. It's just like thoughts. The only reason thoughts become into compulsion is we don't let go of them. Mm. Uh, and the same thing with feelings. Uh, the reason feelings get caught in this echo chamber of, of rep- endless repetition uh, is the mind won't let go of them. Yes. so it's really a a sitting with the emotion and watching how it arises and how it how it subsides on its own it's self-liberating yeah Uh, i've heard someone i've heard it said that an emotion i think it was candace pert the neuroscientist said you know an emotion takes something like 90 seconds to actually pass through the body yeah yeah we're talking you know neuronally right yeah yeah the rest is mind
1: yeah i love candace's work yeah she's uh she's done a great service to us in, in that. Um, and and absolutely, I, I completely agree with what you said. Um, uh, for me, it was kind of a split, I think, between a lot of Eckhart Tolle's work and a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh's work. And I'm sure there were people talking about this well before them, but in my life, they were the two that really brought it to the forefront of my mind. And something I've learned and now I, I, I teach is very similar to what you just said, is coming to the understanding that there is a feeling, for example, of sadness arising in me. I am not the sadness. I am the awareness, aware of this sadness arising in that very subtle shift. Wow. The liberation that comes with that, you know, and it's not, it's not that I'm disowning that. If anything, I'm owning it more, but I'm recognizing I'm not the sadness. I'm aware of the sadness. How beautiful, you know, and it's that simple, really.
2: That it's everything. Yeah.
1: But people really want to own, you know, their feelings, their thoughts. It's, it's very obviously frightening to the ego to start to let that go a bit.
2: It's also frightening to the ego to realize that it's making up a fiction all the time. It's creating stories all the time, yeah. uh, and the f- feelings are some of the best fodder for stories that we have. <laughs> yes. But you know, when you when you when you uh, scrap, scrape the feeling away, when you strip the feeling away, you see that there's nothing but it's nothing but sensation.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And the rest, the rest is narrative. And sometimes the narrative has uh, has material that needs to be looked at, but still, it's just a story. Yeah. It's not the feeling.
1: Right. Yeah. So two books I need to talk to you about. I would be very remiss if I did not, because you've worked on two of my absolute favorite books. Uh, So I need to ask you first about your work on the Tibetan book of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche. Um, That book is by my bedside, as it always is. You know, it's always right there. I love that book. So can you talk a bit about your experience with that?
2: Well, yes, I mean, Sogyal is, is, a, is a wonderful teacher, right. and I happened to uh, meet him through Andrew Harvey, who was working on this Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, yeah. uh, and I was in Aptos, California, at the Rigpa Foundation when uh, Sogyal was there, uh, and... I was asked to do a couple of chapters of the book, yeah. so that, that's that's what I did, and to and to read, you know, read the the work in progress. So I was I was part of that that big, you know, that big project, yeah, uh, which and which was wonderful for me because I learned so much.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I, I actually did not know that you were involved. I knew Andrew was, but then I found out you were and I was, wow, okay. So yeah. that's incredible. I mean, to, and to know your books obviously have had such a huge impact on so many people, but then to also be involved in other books, you know, that are just changing lives. It's It's really wonderful. And thank you for that. You know, great work. And the other book is from Ram Das. you know, still here. We see in the uh, Fierce Grace documentary a bit of you working with him. So can you talk about your time working? I mean, it's Ram Das. How was that working with him on that book?
2: Anyway, that was an amazing experience. Uh, I was called by a friend of mine who was his editor yeah. uh, and uh, said that Ramdas had had a stroke. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't able to finish uh, this book about aging that he wanted to to write. And would I like to, you know talk to him about helping him? So I flew to California and and uh, went to his place in San Anselmo, and there he was sitting in a wheelchair with his arms you know taped to the to the to the arm of the thing. and he was not in good shape. I and mean, this right. was, this was, I don't know how many months, but this was months after the, after the stroke, a stroke that 90 had a 90% fatality rate, yeah. so he was severely aphasic. He could not speak very well. Uh, he was in quite a bit of pain. Yeah. Um, and I, so I stepped into this situation of, of trying to, you know, help him find the words that he couldn't find himself Yeah. So it was a painstaking, uh, sometimes really hard process. Yeah. But I learned from his example, just being with him, yeah. uh, to see this man who was had been a caretaker to so many people. Uh, he he was a kind of a spiritual hero, yeah. uh, doing service all over the world. And for the first time, he couldn't feed himself. He mm-hmm. couldn't go to the bathroom. Uh, and the roles were reversed. And he he, he said that it was the the most uh, profound spiritual teaching he had ever had yeah. was accepting help learning to let love in learning to let go of control and Ramdas would be the first to tell you he was a control freak sure i mean one of the things one of the things that's so great about him is that he's always presented himself as a work in progress yes. and been very candid about his own you know very human you know failings uh, and he he was very much a control freak and he had to let go of that and it wasn't always easy uh, and, you know, without going into anything, you know, too private, things happened that were he was having a hard time. Yeah. So things happened, uh, And to see how he handled them and then how he did made amends uh, for them, just minor things. Right. was a lesson to me. It was a lesson to me in, in what it means to be on a true path. Yeah. You know, as he went, he went beyond the call of duty yeah. to clean up. Whatever mess had been created sure. by his own emotional re- responses,
1: yeah,
2: uh, and and I, I came away with so much respect, you know, for him. Mm. You know, I had never, I had never been a student of Ram Dass, as uh, and be here now was a little before my time, and yeah. I just had never connected to, with him before that. So, I, which I think is good because yeah. you know, people put him on a pedestal, and to me, he was, he was just, he was just a guy. Sure, yeah. yeah. And he was, uh, we had a good time. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah.
1: How beautiful. Yeah. He, he, I am one of those people that I can't help it. I, you know, I do put him on a pedestal. I know we don't want to do that with our teachers, but he and, uh, and Ken Wilber have been t- probably the two great teachers in my life. I mean, there are many, but you know, these two guys have just had such an impact in really saving my life. You know, how can I kind of not? So I mean that I I do think you're right. You know that you were able to step in in that way and and have not really been that familiar with Be Here Now or anything. That's great. Um,
2: the other thing is, uh, you know, Chris, when you're coming to do a job like that, yes. I mean, I was there as as a as a writer. Right? Right. I was basically there to ghostwrite slash edit this book. Right. It was a lot of work. Yeah. So I was in work mode. <laughs> And i really was i was yeah. i mean i was i had my work hat on yes and I, I went into his house and i was the one who had to keep pushing the little you know the little train up the hill yeah uh and there were times when he didn't want to be pushed and there were times <laughs> when uh but it was my job so when you're playing a role like that and it is a role yeah um it, it's it's a it's a, it's different than had i just been hanging out with him as a as, as a buddy right sure uh there were times when I had to be the taskmaster. <laughs> and for someone like Ramdas, that's not always <laughs> oh, so easy.
1: Yeah, I can imagine.
2: <laughs> so I had to I had to push and know when to stop pushing. I needed to let go of my own agenda. Yeah. And allow the process to take its own form. So it, it was it was challenging. It was it was it was not easy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well but thank the
2: book you. but the book turned out really well, I think.
1: Oh, I agree. tremendous book. And thanks for stepping in and doing that. That's you know you you what a service. So I mean, out of all the books you you've written and worked on, this probably isn't a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Is there one that really just connects to your heart more than the rest, or is there is that impossible to answer?
2: It's hard to answer because they're very they are like children and sure. they're very different children. Yeah, you know, sex, death, enlightenment has a. Will have a has a place in my heart yeah. the, that the others don't because it changed my life as a writer mm. uh, and it, it opened a lot of opportunities for me. It gave me a career as a, a in publishing uh, and so Sex, and Enlightenment is dear to me. Uh, I think that the boy he left behind is 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 in certain ways a, it's a better constructed book because it was my second book and I I knew better what I was doing. Yeah, um, When You're Falling Dive is very very dear to me. Primarily because of the how much it has meant to people, yes, uh, in, in their own lives. I can't tell you the really hundreds and hundreds of people I've met, letters I've gotten that you know my mother is in is an ICU, and I gave her when you're, and it gave her f- courage. And to me, this is this is I, I could want nothing more. That's yeah. music to my ears. That's why I wrote it. Uh, and Ethical Wisdom I love because I have never worked so hard on a book because I it was my first research book mm. and. It gave me a whole different framework, psycho spiritual framework uh, around morality and ethics that I'd never had before. So they're all they're all dear to me in their own way.
1: That's beautiful. And for any aspiring writers listening, what would you what would you uh, suggest to them? Anyone that's struggling, anyone that doesn't know what to do to move forward, any advice you would give them?
2: regularity and create a writing
1: practice.
2: Mm. Uh, regularity and momentum means so much in the creative process. Uh, when people just sit down every now and then to, to write and wonder why they, can't, why they can't find the muse, and the muse can't find them, you know, it's because the muse doesn't trust them. They have not established wow. trust with the muse to show up. So um, a regular writing practice. And also, if you see it as a spiritual practice, it helps an awful lot. Because right. uh, it's less about, of course, we want you want to write wonderful stuff, yeah. but it's it's as much about showing up the way it is showing up on your cushion, yeah.
1: uh,
2: as it is having the perfect meditation or writing the perfect page, yeah. uh, because then writing becomes your teacher. It yes. really becomes your your mirror teacher, showing you all the places where you're caught, all the places where you're you know scared, and also the places where you're free and 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 uh, wise. Yeah. Uh, so, so it. Uh, if you see it as a spiritual practice, it helps with those times when it's not going well. Uh, you realize, gosh, I can learn so, so much about myself uh, in this, even if. You know, the writing, the writing
1: sucks. It sucks, right? Yeah, it could be just for you and your own growth at that point. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I think I mentioned this, but for listeners, Mark teaches uh, really wonderful writing workshops as spiritual practice. He does another workshop I mentioned uh, based on the book, When You're Falling Dive, and a number of other workshops. And these, I'm assuming, can all be found at your website. Is that correct?
2: Yes, my my schedule and my and my e-courses can all be found on my website. Uh, and I'd also love listeners to know about my my baby, my labor of love, yes. which is the Seekers Forum. Mm. Uh, I, the Seekers Forum is a community I started a couple of years ago, just because I wanted a place to talk about the kinds of things we're talking about today, yeah. uh, and on a regular basis. And it really took off. I started doing a monthly talk, and it's taken off. And I just started a great new website called theSeekersForum.com, uh, and we've got hundreds of members all over the world. And it's it's my I I love it more actually than anything else that i'm doing in my life wow. so i'd love for folks to come uh it's you know it's it's a on donation basis whatever you can give uh is fine I, nobody is turned away and it's a it's a big reservoir of, of material and, and information uh, you can drop in anytime and listen to a podcast or you know read read an inspiring article watch a video it's it's, it's i'm very very proud of
1: it oh it sounds wonderful so it's the Yes sir. Cool. And and I so we'll have a link to that listeners on the website itself. So if you're driving or whatever, you can uh check this out when you get back home on on the website for this podcast. That link will be there, your website, Mark will be there. We'll have links to your books as well so listeners can find those and anything else. I mean, like I said we could have gone in in so many different directions. This has been a really wonderful chat for me to have with you. Is there anything we didn't cover you wanted to talk about before we wrap this up?
2: No, we've been, this is pretty, pretty comprehensive for for 60 minutes. Right. (laughs) It's really, it's been great to talk to you, Chris.
1: You as well, Mark. I really appreciate your time. And again, everything you're doing in the world is very important, much needed. So thank you. Much gratitude to you for that.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Mark.